This is John Yablonski. Hey, this is Donald Copeland. Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. This is Shane Holloway. This is Laval Sanders. This is Food. And you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm a little under the weather. I was kind of woke up last night, kind of swollen glands, kind of like scratchy throat. I was like, here we go. Cold's coming. Pop the vitamin C, and I got a podcast tomorrow morning to do. Well, Mike, let me say, today, as of this recording, we are 70 days out from the Seton Hall exhibition with Bloomfield. I am excited about this season, and I am excited about what we just saw. You're that excited? Should we be doing a podcast about an exhibition tour in the middle of Italy? Well, I'm kind of conflicted, Mike. On one hand, a Seton Hall game is a Seton Hall game is a Seton Hall game. I don't complain when we're scheduled against the Wagners or the Ionas of the world, but I'm also not overly excited about the results. While these games on the Italian tour ended up being glorified scrimmages, especially that second one, it's always good to get to see some extra games during the season. And yes... I've seen more competitive games at the wreck, and everything that happened during the Italian tour should be taken with a grain of salt. Here, here's what I believe. When you have a season that is this highly anticipated, and there's a lot of kind of like a unknown variables that are going to be needed to contribute to the success of that season, I think people want to know, you know what the answers are going to be and can we get any insight as to what the resolutions are going to be. For example, people want to know what's going on with Ike. No, no one's seen him really play other than a couple highlight videos of Florida State. Are Kale and Sandra going to take the next leap? Is Roden and Nelson going to have their breakout year that everybody thinks is going to happen? Are we going to have a problem shooting three-pointers from the new distance? We weren't that good last year. And to be honest, you also get a little sneak peek at Taco Mosin to see what he's going to look like, not for this season, but after he sits out and plays the following. So, yes... I believe there's plenty to talk about. And after I've already invested the 
and I sat around charting two full box scores, I think that we have enough impressions that we can share. So the first game on the Italian tour was supposed to be in Venice. It was canceled due to travel issues because of poor weather in Newark. I don't know what poor weather is anymore, Michael, being out here in San Diego, but I'll take their word for it. The second game, Seton Hall beat the ground 84 to 53. And then in that final game, they put on an offensive clinic, beating the Peak Warriors 108 to 49. Uh, let's put the competition into perspective. Now, I don't know if they were really local all-stars because some of those guys looked a little out of shape. They mentioned that the ground beat the NC State team last year, but it can't be the same roster. No, it's a, it's a collection of like an all-star team from what they were saying, and they've only technically practiced for like a couple weeks. Most of these guys are, from what they were saying, level two, level three Premier League type players that are hoping to catch on to fill out a roster. So if these guys were that talented per se, they'd be playing at the level one, which they're not. If they were even that good, they'd already be on a defined roster. So this was a glorified tryout. What, what I had an issue was they had these neon yellow green jerseys for the ground with the names on the back so i thought it was a nice touch but the shorts didn't even match so they didn't have uniforms this was like hey seton hall's coming in and we're gonna play a little pickup game i wouldn't even be surprised if the university bought them their practice jerseys you know <laughs> you know i think it's a reach calling these local all-star teams these are guys that were local pickup guys so Obviously, they didn't have the same size or athleticism as the Seton Hall. They were much more perimeter-oriented. They always looked to make that extra pass. As per is expected in Europe, they're more fundamentally sound, but they weren't all that good. Well, that's the, that's the point. They wanted no part of Gil or Obiago in the middle. They were just like in awe of their size. Everything stayed on the perimeter. So when we start looking at the results, I think we have to take into context that the talent level was just not even close to being equal. Uh, one of the announcers made a comment and said, hey, if this was an Italian Premier One team, they might give Seton Hall a run for their money. So the fact that we're playing with guys that belong on a level two, level three, and they don't, they're trying to make a roster, it kind of just puts in the context the level of competition that they were up against. So to an extent, yes, it was a glorified pickup game. But I think if we look at individual developmental aspects of what Seton Hall you know, did during those couple of games, yeah, there are some takeaways. But I'm not going to sit there and put any stock and say, oh, we won by 40 or, you know, we doubled them up. I think that's irrelevant. What I find odd is that both these games were completely different with how Seton Hall attacked them. The first game seemed to be played more straight up. Kind of the substitution patterns were the normal patterns. People playing in their normal positions. Where the second one was more of a kind of mad scientist kind of attack to it. I mean, at one point they had both... Um, Obiagu and Gill out there. They kind of had Obiago playing a a power forward. They and they had Torian Thompson out there. So you had the shortest guy out there being six <laughs> ten in that front court. You're that never, was pretty you're crazy. Never going to see that lineup in the regular season. No, Stop but what it. I'm but what I'm saying is is why not be that 
you know, mad scientist in both games. Both these games seem to have a tale of two different tapes. All right, so, so let's do that. Let's pick specific aspects of kind of what we can analyze, whether it be three-point shooting, certain matchup combinations, but I don't think that Willard had to have a specific mindset of, of I got to do this, I got to do that, and then we're going to break down how he shuffled his lineups. Hey, throw up whatever you want up against the wall, see what sticks. That's the whole purpose of this type of an event. Maybe you run into something that you're like, ooh, I like that, but I don't think that was the intent. I think it was like, you and I talked about it, more practice time, you're allowed to get the full 10 days, which unfortunately with the travel issues, they lost some of that time. It's a bonding experience, you get a little bit of culture. You're trying to create this team camaraderie. So we'll do some basketball, but I think the mindset was more collective. This is gonna be a grind of a season. Let's make sure that we are all on the same page. We like each other as we're going through this gauntlet because the expectations are pretty high. Okay, right. the game's night and day when it comes to three-point shooting. Game one, one of 25, and I want to say that one came on the first shot Kale took. It did. It did. It looked and, good. I was like, all right, Kale's got his three down. And no. then it went 0 for the rest of the game, 0 for 39 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, Kale finished 1 of 10. Shavar finished 0 of 7. Uh, Molson was 0 of 4. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of excuses that can be thrown out. So let's let's be fair to the team. They did travel cross continental, so jet lag. I mean, it's a, what a 13 hour flight. That could be a factor. It might not be. I didn't know this, and I did some research after I saw people kind of posting that the ball was different. I was like, how do they play with a different ball in the states versus international? And believe it or not, the ball is a different size. I think it was like 29.5 as the circumference on an NBA basketball. And on a FIBA basketball, it's actually larger. So not not a huge difference, but any minor change in the ball size and how it feels, that, that could throw you off. No? Keep going. Keep going. Right. Give me give me all the excuses. Then, then give me we all have, the excuses. Then we have the fact that they're playing at the international longer distance three-point line, which is the same distance that the NCAA changed the rule and that all collegiate teams are going to be playing at going forward. So, but But that's a different feel. And then this was a weird gym. Remember we were at Hinkle and the light was kind of coming through some of the windows. I felt like this had like 10 times the amount of windows that Hinkle had. And these beams of light were kind of streaming in all over the court, making the sight lines probably miserable to shoot with. I can't say that it was or wasn't because it wasn't on the court, but watching on on the video, it just looked awkward. This, no? look, this looked like a mid-afternoon high school gym where yeah. nobody's hitting anything. Mike, okay. I will accept your reasons for poor shooting. And again, like I said earlier, I'm not going to give it too much credence, but they shot 4% for the game. Oh, well, they no, did. They, they shot 4%. I don't care what your excuses are. And you know what? If your shots aren't falling, do something else. Stop shooting. Now, Mike, if they shot 18%, 14%, all your reasons would kind of be justifiable. 4%. I'm not defending it. You just asked me to give the other side of the perspective because there's a lot of people on social media complaining about, oh, you can't read into that. One for 25, no matter how you spin it, is horrible. So that being the first look at the Seton Hall Pirate team and three-point shooting potentially being a concern, I could understand where half the fan base is like, uh-oh, do we have a problem here? And others are like, just throw it out the window. It doesn't really count. So we're just giving you both sides of the perspective. But I'm with you. One of 25. 
I was I was kind of cringeworthy because it wasn't like they were shots rimming out or sh- guys had hands in their face. We're talking wide open threes and shots that were not even close. Yeah. There was a couple what what just grazed the rim or clanked off the backboard and didn't even hit the rim. It wasn't pretty. No. But game two was night to the day. And we're talking 12 of 25 shooting. Kale rebounded greatly. Five for five. Roden came out and played three for four. And we had five different players make a three. Okay, so that's a good point. I, f- I forgot that in my list of defending the one for 25. Powell didn't play. Roden didn't play in game one. Those are two of your better three-point shooters. And they're not factored into those numbers. But uh, all right, let, let's dive into the 12 for 25. Here's what I, I noticed visually from Kale's 5 for 5 versus Kale's 1 for 10. It looked like Kale was trying to practice his three-point shot off the dribble. It was a lot of kind of like, you know, crisscross, come around the pick, and a lot of it was, you know, not where his feet were set. It was off of a dribble. I felt like all five shots in the second game were off good passes where he was set in the corner or off the wing, and he was able to gather himself and have his legs underneath him. Okay, go. Don't do that going forward. Or maybe we do less off the dribble shooting going forward. They were definitely within the offensive structure in yes. game two. So it was nice to see get his feet underneath it. And, and and they felt like they were going in. The minute you saw him line up his feet and boom. I think J.P. Pelsman said it. He's got nice form on his jumper. He does. So, you know, you kind of expect it. Where do we see that coming in the season? Probably somewhere in the middle. Well, that's the thing. Last year, you had six of eight against Villanova, and we looked like world beaters. And then you have games where he disappears, not to the extent of one for ten. We're hoping for more consistency from Kale. We give all the excuses for game one. We just don't want one for ten and five for five. I want three for six. Right. And, and, and you know, uh, again, with this tour, he probably had something in his mindset that he wanted to work on. I still want to see him attack with that athleticism. So th- this is probably just him having an opportunity in gameplay to shoot that three. All right. Let, let's continue to dive into this three-point analysis. I like the fact that after Shervar shot 0 for 7 in game one, he didn't attempt a three in game two. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe it wasn't, didn't look like he had the open looks. But in game one, it looked like Shavar was hunting the three-point shot. And you said to me, it's kind of not really his game. He's never really had a strong percentage from behind three. So why don't you know your role a little bit better? And in game two, he ends up with five assists. He wasn't trying to force the three ball. So if you're telling me Shavar is going to play a limited role and he's not going to force the open look, I'm okay. You know, in, in game one against the ground... Shavar was looking like he was the number one option on the offense. He was coming off of the screen, first pass in from the point guard, and he's firing. And it was driving me nuts because when you get to a certain point, unless your name is Steph Curry, stop shooting. (laughs) Stop shooting. But what was nice was the fact that when he did go to the basket, he was creating. He had two assists in that first game, and he probably missed out on two more assists because of bad hands from the bigs and like you said he had five assists in the second game now if he's gonna create a little bit that's a positive i I just want him to play within what his strengths are so maybe the coaching staff and we don't know this in game one said let me see what you got you know you got a chance to work the entire summer and i want to see you be aggressive and shoot the three-pointer whenever you have the chance to and then after he goes over seven they're like hey look we want to see something different from you in game two. Back off the three, 
facilitate a little more. You don't know what the conversation was behind the scenes. So maybe it was him making a conscious decision, or maybe that was guidance from the staff. And, and I'll say this, he was facilitating from off ball, kind of. You know, he yeah. wasn't bringing up. No. He, when no, he no, played no. point, the offense struggled. When he's coming and playing the two, and then he's making things happen, he looked good. Look. He looked good. I, I think we've like had a revelation with Shavar over the summertime. We were beating him up last year, and now all of a sudden we're like, ah, I like Shavar. No, we, it's not that. You know, we want to see positive, uh, positive results from him, especially if he's going to play minutes. So I agree again. He comes off the pick. He gets the ball on the wing. He's quick. He's low to the ground. He's got a fast dribble when he attacks. He has certain strengths if he plays within his, you know, what his skill set allows him to do. But let's continue to move on. I would also like the fact that Roden didn't play game one. We were concerned about the walking boot. Was it precautionary? He looked, he looked pretty good. He was out there shooting the three with confidence. I said this. I was a little disappointed after the amount of points he scored in his high school career, averaging almost like 28 a game, that that didn't translate to Seton Hall right away. And people were attributing that to the shoulder injury and that it maybe took him longer to kind of get back into the, you know, the comfort zone towards the back end of the season, which we saw. Like he was like, what, 2 of 20 to start the year? But on the back half, he was shooting like 40%. Don't you think that we're going to see more consistency from him? What was nicer to see from him was the fact that it was within the offense. They sure. weren't awkward shots. They weren't rush shots. Okay. They, you know, it was he played within himself. And sometimes it takes a year to get a guy going, you know? I mean, these we're so spoiled watching some of these top flight recruits come in and, and immediately have big numbers. You know, sometimes it still takes a year, a little bit more to get production from some of these guys. The concern was someone who's scoring 28 at the high school level and then all of a sudden couldn't find the basket. You question what level of competition he might have been playing against or whatever. Right. Point is, we were drilling down on three-point shooting. Game one was cringeworthy. Game two kind of made you feel a little bit better, and you're like, all right, let's not kind of belabor this point much more, but we just did for like 10 minutes. <laughs> all right. I don't want to go too long with this, but we did see our version of the Twin Towers out there together in that second game, and mostly in the fourth quarter. Very limited sample size, but one thing we did see was some of those guys from Peak Warriors dribbling into the lane and then looking up and just saying, oh, no. Oh, deer in headlights. They were, like, circling back around. It was kind of like, you know, where you see Steve Nash, like, probing through the lane. Nash does that with an intent. These guys were like, uh-oh, I don't want right. to be here. And what was funny was there was a lot of chatter on the message boards, on social media, that they didn't get a block in game one. Again, these guys weren't driving on these guys. I mean, Obiagu is a beast. He's huge. His shoulders are big. He can jump. We've already, we've seen a year of Gil. We know how big he is and how he can reach. So this is going to be a positive. I would say I'm a little disappointed because Kevin put out the Twin Tower concept in some of the things that he wanted to publicly work on. And the fact that he only did it for a window of time when we're up by 50 in the fourth quarter of the second game, that was a little disappointing. I would have liked to have seen it earlier. I'd like to see it for different stretches. He has to play it in a 2-3 zone, right? That, that's how he brought it out and implemented it in the fourth quarter. These guys can't match up and play a man-to-man -man and be on the court at the same time, can they? No, no, you can't do it. And even in that 2-3 
Obiago's going to get lost out there on that wing. It's almost like you have to play, and without getting into too much, you got to play that 3 2 where you have three wing type players and have them clog the baseline. So here's what I'm going to predict I'm going to predict that Kevin is not going to play the Twin Towers look throughout the season. I don't know that we can. I, I don't know that either one of those guys can chase the th guys off the three. I don't think so. I think no. Sandro at times might even struggle playing his natural four, chasing an athletic wing. So, and that's almost a twin tower look because Sandro is 6'11". Uh, that's going to that. be a big front line, It is a big man. front that's line. That's a big front line. But, but I don't think you're going to see it as often as people want to. What you're going to get, and what I took away from the two of them playing, is they both are competent. So you can play 20 and 20, as the box score is kind of played out, or you can do a 25 and, you know, 15 and then move Sandra over for a couple of minutes, however you want to break it up. And, and you know what, man, if we get 10, 12 and five out of those guys combined, if I told you we got 10 and eight from our center position night in and night out, I, I'd be disappointed now. Really? I, I think we got to get more boards. No. I think those guys got to grab more boards. I don't know. It's, it's once again, it's hard to evaluate. There were times where Obiago got an offensive rebound and it took like two or three seconds to gather, and he still went back up uncontested. That's not going to happen I, when I don't he's playing against Biggie's competition. I don't think he's got the hands either. I think they got to work on his hands because there were a few passes that went down to him that he kind of fumbled. I was and, surprised, though. I thought his hands were kind of soft on the offensive rebounds. Like He has the touch to kind of put it back up and maybe be like five feet away. It doesn't have to be just a dunk. And a lot of the feedback was that he's really raw offensively. I get that, but I, I see potential there. Yeah. I could be. It's hard. The, what, the tallest guy for the other team was what, like six seven. And he's gonna he's gonna still tower over most of the Big East. I he mean, is. He is. But an athletic player like a Najee Marshall, who's six seven six eight, is gonna be able to get up and challenge him if he's not gonna get off off the floor. Okay. Hey, let, let's go to this, Mike. All right. Let's talk about early player impressions, and we'll volley back and forth. What did you see? Start with my boy. Go ahead. I mean, Sandro stole the show, in my opinion. You look at the box score. His numbers popped in both games, double-doubles. And in the second game, he played limited minutes, and he still put up a double-double. He was aggressive. He was confident in his shot. Uh, it wasn't just at the rim. He was he was grabbing boards on the offensive side. So I think when you have guys like Gil and Obiago in the game, it's going to put the other team's biggest player matched up against them on the offensive glass. And Sandro is playing against a much undersized power forward. Once again, very small teams. Will that be the same in the Big E's play? I think so. So he was crashing the offensive glass, getting putbacks, getting dunks. He was grabbing rebounds on the defensive side and then going coast to coast. He hit a couple threes in the second game. He was shooting five or six one game from the free throw line. I was impressed. Yeah, I mean, he looked, he went strong, which is one thing that we had issues with him. He went strong to the hole, he, and he wasn't looking to dish out, and granted, these aren't exactly Big East caliber guys, but it's still a nice thing to see. There was no hesitation. So normally right. when like a guy's a freshman or sophomore, you see them like kind of thinking through the play. He wasn't doing that. He was grabbing the ball and going. He knew what he wanted to do, and I think that's the maturity of being the upperclassman and I think that's going to close the gap on the consistency issue. When you have that confidence and you just know what you want to do because you have the belief in it, that's when you see the results. I'll tell you this. Who impressed me? Taco Molson. And I again, I did. it's grain of salt time, but he's athletic. He's active. He knows where to be on defense. And he seems to have a high, uh, high basketball IQ. He did a really good job uh, fronting and then hedging. 
I mean, he seems to be a good replacement next year for Q. He looks like a ball player. Yes. He just has that look. Like, he knows what he's doing. He's in the right position. He's hustling. So I like the fact that if you're going to be a member of a new team, you're not trying to kind of endear yourself with your offensive game. He led with his defense first. So there were times that he got a lot of breakout uh, dunks off of his steals in the first game. Struggled with his shot a little bit in the second game. I like him. I, I think it's a nice pickup. I wouldn't mind continuing to go this transfer route at the low D1 level for the guys that excel because I think they play with more fundamentals and then you don't have to kind of teach as much when you bring them in. They can make an immediate impact as you slot them into the rotation. His three-point shooting was a little bit to be desired. Yeah, that he needs to work on that. Right? Well, he was shooting 28% before he got here, and Tyler Calvaruso was like, don't worry, Will is going to coach that up. He was, what, 0 for 6, 0 for 7 in the two games? He, it looked like he just didn't have the range on that type of jump shot. No, and, and you know what? Maybe with some work, it'll. he's got an entire season that he doesn't have to worry about being in the games. He can work on it. Why do you have to be a three-point shooter? I know you're, he's a wing and he's going to play some two and three, but if his game is in the mid-range, I'll give you a guy that I used to love that never shot a three-pointer. John Allen would not shoot the three. That was not in his repertoire. Once in a blue moon, he would. But John's game was like 15 to 18 feet, and he was deadly. But why can't he be that kind of guy? Right. All right, let, let's move on. So we were already kind of touching a little bit on uh, Ike Obiago. That's how you pronounce it, apparently. Uh, his offensive limitations are things that were being highlighted on message boards saying, hey, don't put too much stock in what you think you're going to get in the low post. He had a couple nice moves. There was one time that he got fed into the post. He did a little Delgado double drive or double dribble with the right hand into the paint. Did an, a fake, a little up and under, and then a soft finish. That's a pretty polished move. He didn't do that that often. But just for that to be in his repertoire, showed the soft hands, I think there's potential again. And there was a time that he was on the fast break with, with Nelson, and Nelson threw up a lob. He didn't finish it, but he got it. Oh, man. When, when he's going to throw one down, it's going to be, whoa, did you see that? Every podcast. And this guy's a beast. And he's physical. He doesn't mind getting down there and mixing it up. So it's going to be interesting watching him. Again, grain of salt time, but Tyree Samuel looked pretty good out there. Hey, I wanted to see more than 10 minutes of him in the first game. I know he got three fouls, but in the second game, he came out blazing and he showed good athleticism. He showed like he belongs on the court. Like, and now will it translate to NCAA division one games? That's going to be a question, but he looks good. We recruited him. People are debating, was he a three-star? Is he a four-star? Is he a three? Is he a four in position? I don't know yet, but he played above the rim. I like that. So when you've got a freshman who grabs a rebound, takes two dribbles, outlets to Sandro, runs the floor hard, gets it back from Sandro, maybe what, a step inside the, th uh, the free throw line? Two steps, tomahawk behind his head and throws it down. Yeah, okay, competition, whatever. You either have that skill set or you don't. There were other times that he got out on the fast break. He got nice, nice feeds from Nelson or he took a pass at like the high post, took a couple dribbles and his athleticism allows him to take one or two steps, elevate and finger roll like a George Gervin style 
above the rim. All right, don't laugh at me like that. I'm not saying he's George Gervin, but how many guys do you see actually finger roll the ball anymore? I will hold my George oh, okay. Gervin laughter till we talk about the announcers for game two. But but you know you're right, and and it sounds simple, but he looked like he belongs out there. It's not like he's got a lower level skill set that he was playing against guys that just weren't good competition and he was dominating them. He looked good. He looked pretty good during the FIBA under 19. He looked good out there. We, we debated. We debated what is he going to do on the defensive side, and this was not a game to really evaluate what he could do defensively. I think that's where it's not his fault. This is just Willard's MO. If he doesn't think that you're in the right defensive position or you're lacking the intensity, and we don't know that's going to happen, but that's where I couldn't evaluate Tyrese in these games. Well, he's still he's still a young kid. He's he's really thin. I want to see him get some time. He'll right. Yeah. No. No. I definitely. I want to see some minutes out of him. I don't want him to end up being that typical Willard freshman that doesn't get time. He they need to get him out there, get his feet wet, and see what the kid can do. I, I think it's going to be five to ten minutes. And we said it in the last podcast. When it gets to Big East, you know, regular season play. It's going to be about his defense. If he plays defense, he's going to get the minutes because he, he's not a liability. You're not playing four and five offensively out there with him. I, I think he's going to become one of those LCP favorites that we always talk about. I think he's going to take over Nelson's role. This is what you need. You need a guy like a Samuel who's a little bit under the radar but has that higher ceiling, and we get a chance to develop him because we develop players pretty well, and maybe by the time he's a junior – we're talking about a potential Big East stud because of that athleticism, and he puts it all together. There's way too much unknown right now, but I like the flashes that we saw. All right, th then there's then there's your typical, hey, I know what I'm already getting, and it was just kind of refreshing to see again. So Q didn't play much in either game. He played 10 minutes in the second game. He got kind of poked in the mouth in the first game and only played a, a limited set of minutes. But there was a sequence where within five minutes, I think he stole three passes by stepping into the passing lane. Q steals are not just like, all right, I'm going to hedge down on the low post and kind of scrape, you know, and steal a possession. His his defense leads to points, and that happened again, you know, in, in the first game. They're always leading out to breakouts and easy baskets. And with our offensive challenges historically, it's always nice to know that our defense can lead to some offense. So not much out of Q, just pretty much par for the course. So as much as we know what we're going to get from Q – Conversely, his counterpart, Nelson, we were looking to see some new things. We knew that when Nelson would drive to the basket, you know, he needed to be a little bit stronger at the rim or he had the ability to get to the rim, but he lacked a mid-range game. So I saw two things from Nelson. The positive that we'll talk about now was he has this like little teardrop I, I can't compare it to Mark Jackson because he gets a little bit more off the ground than Mark Jackson did. <laughs> I get a little bit more off the ground uh, than Mark the, Jackson okay. did. He was finishing that shot pretty often. I mean, it was a high arcing shot where really does bring the rain. It's not going to get blocked too often. And I was just like, oh, okay, it goes. And then he introduced it three or four more times. It was pretty successful. So I like that little variation that he brought to his game from over the summer. To be honest, I, I was watching that and I thought he was giving alley-oops to some guy cutting right, off the side. Right. And then it would go in. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, okay. So, so that's the thing. He's going to get to that point in the floor where he's like seven to eight feet from the basket. And he's proven that he can make this shot now. 
the defender's going to have to kind of step up and challenge that. What happens? That little lob teardrop now becomes the alley-oop because you've left Gil, you've left Obiago, so you're going to hope that he's going to be able to recognize and go, all right, defense is coming at me. Same release, but now it's an alley-oop and not a shot. So let's talk about areas of improvement. And, you know, it wasn't more than 15 to 20 seconds of play, and we got Q yelling at Torian Thompson because he lost his man on defense. Well, let's put it into context and kind of, like, describe what actually happened because I think he had, like, an N1 when he first got into the game off of a nice pass, hits the free throw, and we're like, all right, there you go, Torian. Make me a believer and kind of, you know, back up Tom's uh, prognostication. We come back down on defense on a fast break a couple of possessions later. Everybody has their guy. Somebody is wide open at the top of the key, so someone missed an assignment. The Italian player hits the three, and I pause the video, and in the video, there's a snapshot of Q, hand fully extended, looking at Thompson, pointing to the guy at three-point line, going like, that's your guy. I'll, get, I'll make it better. As the team is jogging back down the floor, I paused it again, and there's like Molson and Q still looking over at their shoulder, going, like shaking their head, going, uh, come on. He's his worst enemy. I don't know what it is. He just loses concentration on defense. I mean, in that first game, we saw what could make Torian a big provider here in this team. He took two balls right to the hole. He got hit. He hit the free throws. All of a sudden, he's playing three minutes, and he's got six points. Well, the the second one was he was at the three-point line. He could have easily taken the three. Everyone was jacking threes in this game. One for 25. Instead, he pump fakes, two dribbles, right to the basket, and one. I was encouraged. And and even in an Italian scrimmage, that defensive (laughs) lapse gets him pulled. He had the second least minutes played in that first game. He was over. Because it wasn't just the missed assignment back in transition. Like a possession or two later. I mean, like literally almost back-to-back sequences, he's running out to the three-point line. I don't know if that was his guy or it was a defensive rotation, but he's closing out on a three-point shooter, and what does he do? He fouls him, shot goes in, four-point play. Thompson was in the game for five minutes at that point, and then all of a sudden at the next whistle, he's not on the floor. He doesn't come back in until the very end of the third quarter of the second half. It's like he got in the doghouse in the middle of an exhibition game. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's he's not. I don't think he's a bad dude. Everything we hear about him is positive from a team standpoint. He's positive on the bench. I just wish he could start concentrating. A little and, we're, more. and we're completely speculating here. We don't know. Maybe that was what the substitution pattern was going to be anyway. Hey, Thompson's going to play five minutes, and then you're going to come back in and again in the third. I, I don't know. Point was, we're looking for storylines from the previous season that we would see carryover into the new year. And it's just the first scrimmage. But the first thing that we wanted to see when we're analyzing Torian was, are we going to see more of a high-level focus on defense? And in five minutes, he had two similar breakdowns that he struggled with the previous year. So just it was not head-scratching because we've seen it before. We were just hoping that it was not going to rear its ugly head again. I'll tell you what I also saw in game one that I didn't quite see in game two. Our boy, Anthony Nelson, seemed a little loose with the ball early. Totally. He he just seemed like he was trying to do too much, work too hard, instead of letting that game come to him. That seems to be what his area of expertise is. He did. He seemed to be a little bit flashy with the ball, You know, a lot of extra dribbling. It just seemed off. But once again, first exhibition game, maybe just needed to get a little more comfortable. 
And, and he did. He didn't play a bad game. It was just the first two or three times he touched the ball, you were like, ooh, that's a bad turnover. Or he didn't seem like he knew what he wanted to do when he went into the lane. And later in the game, he makes a couple steals, hits a couple floaters, ends up with like four or five assists. He didn't have a bad game, but you're right. First impression was like, ooh, he doesn't feel like he's ready for this game yet. I, and on a side note, he's got to grow the hair back out. I oh. love the hair last year, man. Uh, he's got to come back with it. It showed personality. I took away his ability to throw the alley-oop pass. I know Ike missed it. I mentioned it earlier. I think the two of them are going to have a nice little uh, synergy from that perspective. We did have some DMPs. They didn't play Miles for the entire uh, tour, which I didn't expect them to do. Are you okay with that? I am okay with it. I, you know, this is your opportunity to see what other people can do. Miles is the only sure thing, 100% sure you know what you're getting from him. And he just spent uh, a big tourney down at the Pan Am game playing right. big minutes. You beat me too. Unnecessary. Right. I don't need, I don't need Martini and Rossi Kelly kicking a hard foul on him while he's driving, okay? I don't need it. Uh, you beat me to it. If he doesn't play in the Pan Am games and they play five games in five days, does he play in these exhibitions? I think I think the answer is yes, but you got to manage his minutes per se, right? Right. He might not have played a lot. He would have started. He would have gotten a right. few shots yeah, yeah, up. Of course. But no, I am okay with him not playing in Italy. Are you maybe a little bit disappointed that you don't get to see the synergy of the team with Miles on the floor, see how he's going to play that. I'm going to facilitate more role. So he could have maybe played five or ten minutes, and you said, hey, Miles, I don't want to see you shoot the ball. You you just look for the opportunity to find the open guy. That, that's what the exhibition games are for. Okay. You know, I'm okay. Right. I mean, we're playing Bloomfield, and, oh, my God, I can't even – I don't it remember the second matter. team. It doesn't matter. Some D2 D3, and D3 team. Some D3 team from Pennsylvania. He wants to do a little facilitation during those games. Go ahead. Don't even shoot. Shoot the ball if you don't want to. I'm okay. This one, I don't need these guys who are working for real jobs and trying to impress somebody. Even in one of the games, I can't remember if it was the first or second games, the announcers were making comments like, they need to calm that other team down. Oh, because they, they the timeout. I think it was the peak warriors yeah. were, were taking little liberties with some of the big guys. And I get it. I've been there. You know, you got a big guy, you figure oh, I'm going to hammer him. Yeah. And that's and, what happened. There was like a five minute pause in the game. And I'm like, what the heck's the holdup? They were pretty quick in and out of the timeouts. And there's this delay. And the, the color commentator was like, yeah, I think the refs are trying to clean things up. They wanted to remind these guys that it is an exhibition right. to kind of like settle it down. I like a little high level of competition, but not if you're crossing the line. No. And uh, Darnell Brody, uh, just to complete the team, didn't make the trip. Supposedly, there's a family issue that he was dealing with. We wish him nothing but the best and hope all is well. And it's just unfortunate. These are the kind of situations where a guy like Brody is going to get more minutes to kind of develop or see how he fits in the rotation. Is he going to be a part of the rotation? This is where he would have gotten 10 minutes, 15 minutes possibly to play. Maybe he'll get it in the exhibition games. Right. So even though these games were glorified scrimmages, we did have some, whoa, did you see that moment? Well, we got, we got to get into like regular season form here. So this is like our kind of warm up too, right? So we well, got to stick I, with our segments. And I know you're not big on the big dunk. Like I'm always asking Kale to give me, but both games 
had throwdowns of epic proportions. Yes. yes. Tyree Samuel goes down the lane. You already described the play. Grabs the rebound, takes a couple dribbles, outlets to Mamu, keeps running hard, which a lot of big guys won't do. Mamu sees him, feeds him back, and he goes up, puts that ball behind his head, and throws it down. It was... It was- the definition of a whoa did you see that it has to we have to do the segment because it was that impressive but i'm going to challenge you i think there's another one that's up for the nomination to challenge that as the whoa did you see that moment and sandro grabs a rebound even seton hall men's basketball put it out there on twitter and just said we're going to let the video speak for itself mamu grabs the rebound comes up the left hand side he's a full head of steam he gets I don't know, a step inside the three-point line, and all of a sudden, one, two, full elevation, full extension, and the foul, throw down dunk. It was nice. I'm partial to the Tyrese dunk. I know you're partial to your boy. I, I, I'll take both of them this season every game. I like the fact that on both of those plays, as you said, it's an exhibition, but the intensity of running the floor and going strong they were playing it like it was a regular game. I, I like the Tyrese play because you always reward the big man for running the floor. So he gives it up and he gets it back. And I've seen Sandro do it before. Hadn't seen Tyrese do it yet. So that was kind of cool. I'll say this. If that's what he's going to give us this season, I'll take it. Who, Tyrese or Tyrese. Sandro? Uh, bo- I'll take both. But if Tyrese can get in there and inject a couple of those kind of plays, that brings energy yeah, right there. That's going to bring the team. Absolutely. Don't, don't give me this. He's a high energy guy. That'll bring the energy, man. You had to go there. You just, you I go. did. Okay. So, you know what surprised me, Mike, on the broadcasts? The first broadcast against the ground seemed real professional. And they brought our our good friend of the podcast, seem, Dave Popkin. Professional? Dave seem, is a professional. No, what I'm no, no, I'm saying that the the camera angles, yes, the, the yes. whole the whole presentation was very professional. And they brought in again, like I said, friend of the podcast, Dave Popkin, to come in and do play by play. And I think Dave was having a little fun with this game. Uh, <laughs> Normally, this segment is. Stupid stuff. The announcer says out of respect to Dave. I don't think he said stupid stuff. I think he had some Italian flavor that he had prepared for some of his calls. And out of respect to to Dave, I'm just going to throw him out there as you kind of hear his Italian references. So I got about three or four. I think they were all pretty funny. Uh, After a foul call by Obiagu and Mamu on a fast break where the two guys come together to converge on the, the ground player, uh, Dave goes, that was a caprese sandwich. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> All right. Then, then he goes on and you could tell that if a shot missed, like the rims were giving, right? Oh, they were horrible. Were bad rims, but soft touch on the rims. You see the ball at the front yes. rim, backboard, and it can fall in. Definitely the definition of a soft rim. And Dave goes, even the rims are laid back in Italy. I like that one. All I right, did like right. that one. He's got a couple more. Uh, we have Taco Mosin. And the opposition had a player whose last name was Martini. He goes, there is a Molson and a Martini on the court. Cheers. <laughs> All right, I'll give, I'll give, you, I'll give you two more. Uh, the same player, Martini, rattles in a three-pointer. And Dave goes, shaken, not stirred. That was good. That was good. And then last one was uh, Nelson. A really bad shot. He goes, El Brico from three. Uh, you know what? I'll just say, Dave, bellissimo. 
But you know what? As professional looking as the first broadcast was, the second one was horrible. They kept trying to do that close-up shot where all you had was the one player on the screen. You didn't get any kind of idea of what was going around them. And the announcers were putrid. I oh, don't know who these guys it were. It wasn't a professional crew. I, it was just bad. They missed the first two or three baskets because they, let's get our theme out there and talk about things, but don't worry about Samuel hitting his three and then another quick basket. It's just awful. It, I'm not going to defend these kids too much. It was a glorified scrimmage. They were up by 60. I mean, it's some... All right, here's my issue with how Mike, they it was the, the first plays of the game. <laughs> Tell me what's going on. Uh, here, here are my issues with how they continued to call the game going forward. They're having a little side chatter. So then once in a while when a guy hits a three, you want to sit there and go, oh, and, and Samuels hits the three to kind of interject in your, you know, your dialogue of your little side story. That happens all the time during like a baseball game, sure. right? But, but baseball's a lot slower moving. I, I get it, Michael. I get it. But So they're telling stories, and all of a sudden there's like a really good play, and they jump out of their seats. Oh my goodness! Oh, that was a highlight reel play right in the middle of an exhibition! Mark that one down! And I'm like, you just went from like talking about how Kevin Willard should have had eight years oh. to build up the program, and all of a sudden you pause for like, you just hit a shot to win the game. It was, it was well, off. Well, and there's a thing. You, you, you stole my second point here. So they had this conversation about how the Seton Hall administration was very patient with Kevin Willard going through some tough times. And then finally, in year five or six, we started getting uh, some success. Sure. Yeah. And one of those announcers, the names escaped me, and then started talking about how coaches should have eight years to turn around a program. That, that's nearly a decade, Mike. And, and they were talking about how it takes you to five years to graduate your recruiting class. What year does this kid think he's in? <laughs> I mean, this isn't the 80s. This isn't right, the so 80s anymore, a Mike. Sloppy. They should have said, you know what? You should have the opportunity to get through one full recruiting cycle, maybe a second. Uh, or, hey, the smaller program that Seton Hall is at, they're not at a Blue Blood, they're not at a Power Five. Maybe those types of programs should not pull the plug after that four year window. Give these guys a longer leash. I, I, can't believe we're going to go down this rabbit hole in an exhibition game. PJ was given a longer leash. What if we would have let PJ go after four years? Did his track record kind of match similar record-wise to what Willard did in his first four seasons? And the answer is... Yes, yes no? there was there was actually a student vote of no confidence. I don't know who these students thought they were at this point. They, it was something out of a Star Wars movie, but they wanted him fired. But we are talking about eight years to turn around oh, a program. Okay. So maybe, they, maybe, maybe and, eight was too much, but they were, uh, they were, they were just trying to make a point of, here, here's a success story going on at Seton Hall. The first half of his run was not much to write home about. These guys weren't prepared. They, 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 there'd be a shot goes in and they didn't know who shot it. They just, oh, a three. And then, then the oh, I don't think they knew the name side. of a player on the Peak Warriors at all. It was like, oh, another big bucket by the Peak Warriors. I, that's fine. Uh, I, I wasn't watching these games for the audio content or quality from the broadcast. It was nice to have Popkin do game one and have a familiar voice. And his counterpart, I don't know his name, but the fact that they were talking about Michigan State and the preseason rankings, they gave you a little more context to Seton Hall and the upcoming season. 
That, that's fine. If I had Dave's number during that game, I would have told him to put down gelato and get back to the gym because these guys are just ruining this for All me. Right, so what's your conclusion? Let, let's wrap this up. Well, you've already kind of brought it up earlier. This was an opportunity for the team to get extra practice in early, play some games, bond in a totally different environment. And that, that means something. It you does. know, you can bond on campus, but you've got campus going on. You know, you... But if you take the entire team, put them in a foreign land, basically, and they need to be together for that entire time, that's that's a different level of bonding. And, you know, it's not a bad look for recruits either. I would agree. I mean, kids, come to Seton Hall. Go see Italy. You know, stuff like this. It's, it's a good it's a good measure. It's not just us. You're allowed to take this trip once every four years. Right. And we haven't taken this trip since back to 2011, uh, from what I read. So, giving if a player is going to come and play for four years, and we do this consistently when you're allowed to, you get to know that part of your recruiting cycle is you're going to get some culture as part of the process. Not every player is coming to play at the NBA. It's part of the collegiate experience. Right. Let, let's also talk about this practice time together. Well, why can't they have just gotten 10 days some someplace back in the States? Because you're not allowed to. This is a loophole in the practice rules that allows them to, while they're on the trip, have organized practices with the coaching staff on site. That cannot happen if they were still in South Orange and decided to all get together and play in Walsh Gym. Can't do that. Back to the bonding point. They, I don't know if you saw it. They were great pictures on Twitter totally. of these guys at the Coliseum. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just in various places throughout Italy. It, it, I've been to Italy. I don't know if you have. I have not. It's a great, great place to go. Great place to visit. I'm very excited for these kids that they had this opportunity to go. Maybe we broke it down more than we had to. I don't know. Let, let the podcast speak for itself. I think our takeaway is, yes, let's not get too overhyped. They were exhibitions. We're not going to break down the numbers and say that that's a correlation to the rest of the season. There were some nice things we saw. We saw some areas of rust that needed to get improved. It's an exhibition. Final word. We need those two exhibition games from Walsh on TV. Brian Felt, get with Flow Hoops. Get these things online. We will pay the 30 bucks to watch them. (laughs) So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Donald Copeland, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Jerry Walker. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 